All right. Welcome, everyone. Um, I am Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. We have been uh, hibernating for the past uh, month or so. I'm sure we didn't miss anything. Um, for those of you uh, who are attending your first library company event, um, welcome. Uh, we are a research library founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1731. Today we have all sorts of wonderful uh, research fellows that come in about 55 to 60 per year and help us figure out all the wonderful things in our collections. Uh, we have program Americas and African-American history, women's history, visual culture, print culture, and of course, early Americana. Um, and so this fireside chat series, I started this back in April of last year, which feels like many, many years ago now. Uh, and it's helped me uh, sustain a connection to all of you. And I hope you all have enjoyed it. Now we're into, I think our 31st or 32nd fireside. And uh, that owes entirely to the generosity of our research fellows and uh, the scholars that pass through our halls as independent scholars, uh, keeping that going. But with that, it is my pleasure to introduce tonight's scholar. John, John Schmolensky is an associate professor at the University of California at Davis. A historian of early America, he's written primarily on the creolization and violence. Uh, he has written or edited four books, uh, most recently, Friends and Strangers, The Making of, of a Creole Culture in Colonial Pennsylvania, and New World Orders, Violence, Sanction, and Authority in the Colonial Americas, co-edited with Thomas Humphrey, both of which were published by the University of Penn Press. And for both of which, we have a generous 30% off coupon code that I will share. So I encourage you all to take advantage of that. He is currently writing a book about the history of creolization throughout the colonial Atlantic world. And as I was digging into our past fellows page, I see, John, I don't think you were a fellow yet at the library company. Have you been? I've never been a fellow at the library company. All right, so preview of coming attractions. You're gonna come, you're gonna be in residence, and we're gonna talk about this great book that you're working on. Anyone who wants to give me money so I can be a fellow, I'll take it. <laughs> Lovely. All right, I'm gonna pass it over to you. I'm gonna disappear for a little bit, folks, but I'll be back again at the very end. Uh, thank you for attending this talk, uh, this virtual talk. Uh, I'm going to be talking today, uh, my title here, Plum Pudding and Spartans Brave, the Pamphlet War Over the pa Paxton Massacre. I'm really excited to talk to you about this because this is a topic that I quite literally have been obsessed about for decades. What I want to talk about or what I hope to really get across is the importance of satirical pamphlets and especially the satirical cartoons that were produced in the aftermath of these killings. Uh, the importance of uh, cartoons and satire to understanding politics and culture in Pennsylvania. Let me set the stage uh, for this talk. On December 13th, 1763, a group of about 50 men gathered at a settlement of Conestoga Native Americans living outside Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and they massacred the eight people that they found there. Two weeks later, uh, another group of men stormed the Lancaster jail uh, where the, another group of Conestoga had been placed for their protection, and they killed the 14 Native peoples that had been put there for their safety. In January 1764, uh, a group of about 250 men, now calling themselves the Paxton Boys, 
marched on the provincial capital of Philadelphia. Uh, they had heard that the provincial government was housing uh, 200 native peoples uh, in the city to protect them from these uh, frontier murderers. The Paxson boys were met at the city limits by a city militia, which included even some Quakers. And ultimately, they just rather than invade the city, the Paxson boys submitted a petition with their grievances uh, and then left peacefully. Now, I first came across the Paxton massacre while working on my dissertation now more than two decades ago. Uh, my dissertation was on public culture. I was especially interested in how people wrote about religion and politics in public life. So naturally, I was interested in the debate over the Paxton massacre. Uh, this debate eventually spanned four books, 17 broadsides, 27 newspapers, 71 pamphlets, and interestingly, nine political cartoons. Uh, and the digital Paxton at the library company that Will has helped put together, man, there's a lot of stuff there. Uh, and this happened to be the first political debate in British America that used political cartoons. But the Paxton massacre also caught my, caught my eye because of another growing interest that I had, an interest in the uh, in violence and the cultures of violence in colonial America. So really wanted to understand this event. Now, it's not surprising, perhaps, that people would debate the events in Lancaster and debate the march on Philadelphia because this was a violent, horrific attack. And, you know, this is 250 men marching in arms towards the Capitol. Uh, it's almost like they're insurrectionists trying to storm <laughs> the Capitol. But why would people talk about Paxton so much? Uh, people didn't even write this much about the Stamp Act in 1765. And we all know how significant the Stamp Act was in the lead up to the American Revolution. And why would they talk about plum pudding or suggest that King Wampum, their uh, derisive name for Israel Pemberton, the head of the uh, assembly party, uh, provincial assembly, why would they talk about how Pemberton had such a lascivious attraction to Native American women? This seemed like an odd thing to focus on. Uh, and to give an example for the first, uh, my favorite poem from one of my uh, favorite satires here. Uh, tumults and quarrels, friends of Orem, others may fight their battles for him, while they can sit at home in ease and eat plum pudding as they please. Uh, and again, they, the 18th century has the best titles, Battle, a Battle, a Squirt, where no man is killed and no man is hurt. Uh, this here uh, is uh, an Indian squaw, King Wampum spies. King Wampum is Israel Pemberton here, uh, a leading figure in the uh, Quaker political party and the Friendly Assembly. I'll talk about the Friendly Assembly, or the Friendly Association. I'll talk about the Friendly Association later. Uh, and this is him with his uh, uh, sexual lust for Native American women. Uh, this includes, you know, Quaker men as part of the uh, militia that is ready to meet the uh, uh, Paxton boys. It seems like these were odd things, again, to talk about plum pudding, to talk about Pax or Pemberton's attraction to Indian women. These seems like odd things to focus on. So what I 
the focus seems on, but is very important and quite revealing. Uh, so what I want to talk about for the rest of this is how this political satire uh, fits into debates about citizenship and subject, subjecthood in 18th century America, uh, and what it tells us in a broader scheme. And I'm going to focus primarily on anti-Quaker rhetoric, because it's really central, I think, towards understanding this. Uh, oh, and I should say this is done by Henry Dawkins, who is an inveterate anti-Quaker publisher. We're going to come across another couple of great, great publications by him. Um, now, I should say before I get into these prints, anti-Quaker rhetoric have a long history in Anglo-American culture. Quakers were a persecuted minority in uh, 17th century England and uh, Anglo or in England and in English America. Their opponents focused on a few key elements of Quaker faith and practice when they attacked them. Uh, one of the first things that anti-Quaker authors noted, one of the primary things was Quaker dress. Friends dressed in a very distinctive plain style. Uh, they wore the broad brim hats. You can see this in the picture here. Uh, they wore plain style clothing, which included unadorned gray and white clothing fashioned with hooks instead of buttons, uh, clothing that was bereft of rings, ribbons, or adornments of any kind. Uh, they refused to take their hat off in front of any authority figures. Uh, their bodies symbolized their faith. Friends spoke in thee and thou. They avoided the honorific you to, other to speak to other individuals. Uh, they also refused to swear, to swear oaths in any context. The Society of Friends had women preachers as well as men preachers. And they established women's meetings so that Quaker women had institutional authority within the broader movement. And they slowly began to articulate a peace testimony, a pacifist stance during times of conflict. Now, the peace testimony, they were slow to really develop the peace testimony, and they did not adopt it as official doctrine until the later 1600s, but it had its roots in the first decades of the movement. These all raised suspicions among Quaker opponents. The particular form of dress that Quakers had did it really signify holiness or did it represent something else? Their refusal to use honorifics and their refusal to swear, did this just represent a uh, refusal of you know, a, a kind of Christian uh, testimony? You know, Christ enjoins his followers from swearing uh, in the gospels or did their refusal to swear represent a refusal of political loyalty? Did their pacifism mean that they might be traitors within the realm? You know, when they refused to fight on behalf of crown and country, did this signify again that they were disloyal? Anti-Quakers referred to Quaker women as viragos and Amazonians. Even more troubling, if you have female preachers, if you have Quaker Amazonians taking a role in the meeting, what did this say about Quaker men? Were they somehow deficient in their masculinity? Of course, anti-Quakers raised even other questions as well. If there are these women's meetings that are different, you know, uh, Quaker women had institutional authority that no other Protestant uh, 
sects allowed at this time. What really happened in these women's meetings, these things that were so different? Were they places for, you know, spiritual discussion and reflection, or were they occasions for ribaldry and lust? Were sexual or Quaker men sexually deviant? Uh, and there are, there are some wonderful cartoons that I don't have here that show, uh, you know, Quaker men going into these female spaces and, uh, you know, engaging in uh, uh, lustful activity. All of these themes took a sudden salience in the aftermath of the massacres at uh, Lancaster and then the Paxson Boys March into Philadelphia on January 64. Quakers had already attracted suspicion during the Seven Years' War, which lasted from 1754 to 1763. Most friends refused to participate in the war on the British side. They elected not to fight on behalf of the king and his subjects, citing their peace testimony, citing their pacifism. And indeed, friends had never raised a militia in the colony for all of the years they had been in power. When the colonies had been threatened, uh, they often relied on you know, soldiers from other colonies in British America to fight for them on the frontier. Uh, Quaker men could sit at home, luxuriate, and eat their plum pudding while other men fought and died on their behalf. Moreover, during the war, friends that did get involved uh, seemed to be on the side of Native Americans. Pennsylvania Quakers formed the Friendly Association in the hopes of negotiating peace treaties between the colonial government and Native Americans in the West. Members of the association served as translators for Native peoples at the 1758, uh, the conference where the uh, uh, Treaty of Easton was signed in 1758. This conference ended hostilities in Pennsylvania, uh, but made uh, many non-Quakers in the province even more suspicious of uh, what are friends up to? Where is their true alliance? And yet, the militia that confronted the Paxton boys at the outskirt of the city in 1764 included Quakers. This confirmed fears that Quakers were hypocrites. They claim they're pacifists. They don't want to fight. They represent the side of the uh, native peoples at the Treaty of Easton. But when the Paxton boys come to the city, well, suddenly the Quakers find they don't need to be pacifists anymore. They're perfectly willing to take up arms, not against native peoples, but they're willing to take up arms against their fellow British subjects. Uh, and we can see uh, that the pacifist Quakers were hypocrites in the eyes of their opponents. Uh, here, again, in the uh, Dawkins uh, Indian Squaw, King Wampum Spies. And then here in one of Dawkins's other great ones, the Paxton Expedition. Uh, this shows uh, the Paxtonites marching, the Paxton boys getting ready to march on the city. And you can see any number of Quakers, uh, look for the broad brims, uh, getting involved in defending the city by participating in the militia, by taking up arms to defend uh, the city. Quakers had shown that they were hypocrites. Their mask had been ripped off. 
off. And I actually mean that kind of literally. Their opponents refer to the mask being ripped off a lot. Uh, you know, Quakers had said that their bodily performance, that the clothes they wore symbolized their holiness, that it symbolized something about them. Well, their opponents said, now we know you're hypocrites. It's like this shell that you wore over yourself, this mask that you wore over yourself. It's been ripped off. And we know that you really are who you said you were. This was a false front you were putting forward. But then, you know, so Quakers are hypocrites. Their peace testimony is bunk. But then if you look at the doggerel verse at the bottom of the Paxton expedition, you can see that the Quakers, they were hypocrites, but in many ways they were pretty bad hypocrites. Uh, and here, uh, I'm sorry, I can't uh, find, this is really hard to read unless you um, can look at the, Paxton expedition is really huge, unless you can look at it really close up. Uh, but Dawkins writes, the Quakers so peaceable as you will find, who never before to arms were inclined, to kill the Paxtonians, they did advance with guns on their shoulders, but how they did prance. When a troop of Dutch butchers came to help them fight, some down with their guns ran away in a fright. Uh, oh, and I say the Dutch, when they refer to the Dutch here, these are the Pennsylvania Dutch, the Germans who live in the colony. Uh, so yeah, they're hypocrites, but they're bad hypocrites. They can't march. They just prance around uh, and they're cowards even when their fellow Germans, even when people fighting on their side try to march against them, they run away. So again, they're hypocrites, but they're, you know, effeminate and cowardly. They were too useless to march. They can only prance and they're scared of the people fighting on their own side. But if friends were useless as soldiers, why did they take up arms as well? And this was a question that I really had. I didn't understand what anti-Quakers saw was the motivation here. Well, in the eyes of, according to uh, those who criticized the Quakers uh, during this pamphlet argument, friends acted how they did because of their attachment to Native Americans. Uh, they worked hand in hand with Native Americans in the backcountry against the interest of white colonizers in Pennsylvania, even against the interests of their political allies, the Germans. Uh, this is another, it's anonymous. We think it's by James Claypool. Uh, the German bleeds and bears the furs of Quaker lords and savage curds. I love 17th and 18th century titles. You know, you say you can't tell a book by its cover. We can totally tell what this is by its title. Uh, you can see here the Quakers are riding other colonizers in the uh, colony, and they're participating with Native peoples in oppressing other white people, other Europeans in Pennsylvania. They're participating in this racial inversion in the colony. Uh, and you could, I saw, I should point out the mutilated bodies here, uh, including wives and children, the so-called women and children the Quakers aren't protecting. Uh, oh, and, and again, here I keep coming back to this. Uh, 
And we can also see this in the print, the Quakers and Franklin. Uh, this is Israel Pemberton, uh, the so-called King Wampum, selling hatchets to native peoples, making money uh, uh, that way. You know, he's not a pacifist. He's willing to line his own pocket. Uh, and you can see here in the right, uh, a Quaker man uh, in lustful Congress with a Native American woman. Uh, the same way we can see this is Pemberton here. Clearly then, Quakers had worked against the interest of their fellow colonizers in favoring Native Americans. But why? Why had they done so? The anti-Quaker creators of these cartoons, uh, they thought they knew the answer. They thought they knew why Quakers had done this. The reason these anti-Quaker creators thought that Quaker men had a sexual attraction to Native American women. Uh, again, we look here, this is Israel Pemberton. Here, they're more interested in Israel Pemberton being a venal uh, hypocrite as a pacifist. But you know, again, Quaker man here uh, can't keep his hands off this Indian woman. Quaker leaders had a sexual attraction to Native American women. Uh, and I should say too, this is really as explicit when I say it's like a uh, uh, lustful passion. This is really as explicit as a lot of editorial cartoons at the time get. Uh, and in the captions uh, to this Dawkins one, uh, part of the caption here uh, about Israel Pemberton, supposedly King Wampum, uh, at length a pregnant squaw he spies, which made his lustful passions rise. Fain, very fain, he would be at her. Uh, and now his chops begin to water, uh, for hungry dogs love dirty pudding. Uh, so Pemberton here, he, he catches his eyes on a pregnant uh, Native woman. Uh, he becomes lusty, his lustful passions rise. Uh, his chops begin to water uh, because he's a hungry dog who loves dirty pudding. Uh, this is, these aren't even double entendres, these are single entendres in this satire. Ultimately though, in the verse that accompanies uh, this picture, uh, ultimately Pemberton is played for a fool. Uh, this woman uses Pemberton's lust as an opportunity to steal a gold watch, uh, a watch that in the words of the satir satirist, Pemberton had thrust, Lord knows where. So even, you know, we get this insinuation that, uh, I don't know, I don't even know where Pat, uh, Pemberton is supposedly hiding. Watch here. Uh, Pemberton is taken, is overpowered by these sexual lusts and passions, these dirty sexual lusts and passions, but he's bad at it. He's tricked by this native woman. So, okay, uh, going over all of the different themes here and all of the different elements that come out in these political cartoons and in a lot of the other satire. Uh, I do have, I could fill this whole talk with my favorite quotes, uh, quotes in verse from these satires, but really confining myself to the pictures because I think that they reveal a lot in a very visceral way. 
if we look over all of these different cartoons and we try to put together all of the different themes that come out, what's the common thing here? The common thing was that Pennsylvania's friends, uh, the uh, male friends, the, the, the uh, supposedly civic-minded leaders, civic leaders in the colony, Pennsylvania's friends were bad subjects and bad leaders because they were bad men. How were they bad men? Well, they had failed to protect their wives and children, and they had failed to protect the wives and children of other men. Uh, and here, you know, we can see here the, the, I mean, there's this native head that's, you know, in the bushes here, but, you know, there we look, we have the women and children who are massacred there while the Quakers and Indians are oppressing the other European colonizers. When the Quaker men did fight, they were useless cowards who pranced around. Uh, you know, they were hypocrites, but they were bad at it because they couldn't be good manly fighters. Why else were Quakers bad men or how else did Quakers show themselves to be bad men? Well, they couldn't control their sexual lusts. Even worse, uh, you know, their sexual desires, their sexual lusts meant you know, that they were attracted to native women. Uh, it's not as bad. It's not even confined to, you know, if they're stepping out of marriage and, you know, having sexual congress with white women. Uh, they're sexually deviant enough that they're drawn to native women. And this explains why they're, you know, someone like Pemberton and other friends are interested in the friendly association. Their attraction to Indians, you know, is, is political and economic, but it's sexual as well. The picture that emerges here, pun intended, is that anti-Quaker satirists, they use their satire, they use the written satire, and they use these images to construct a coherent image of what a bad subject was. They have, we know through what they're saying, Quakers are bad subjects, they're bad leaders. So the men who craft these satires show themselves, you know, capable of saying, well, here's what a bad subject is like. Through this negative portrayal, though, we can see the outlines of what a supposedly good subject of the king was, what a good subject of the king in Pennsylvania was. And a good subject here, a good Pennsylvanian, good Pennsylvanian leader, embodied true masculinity. He fought for crown and country. He was a good patriarch. He protected his families. He protected the families of others. He was strong enough to control his sexuality without being a deviant. Uh, you know, he, you know he, was, uh, he could control his sexuality and not transgress racial lines. And he was white. Uh, he worked on behalf of his fellow white colonizers. He didn't side with native peoples, nor did he lust for the supposed dirty pudding of native women. Uh, these satirical cartoons tell us a lot about public identity in 18th century Pennsylvania. And one of the things that I think is really telling is that it's not just anti-Quaker authors who embrace these ideas of uh, the centrality, who embrace the ideas of 
you know, political subjecthood uh, being based around masculinity and sexuality. Uh, in what is my favorite pamphlet in this whole debate, uh, this is, uh, oh wait, sorry. This uh, uh, pamphlet, this picture is called, uh, this is from a broadside called A Conference Between the Devil and Dr. Dove. Uh, 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 David James Dove was a school teacher who was an anti, uh, uh, was a defender of the uh, Quakers. Uh, and this uh, broadside was written against him. Uh, it shows Dove, here we go, there we go here, uh, being a, you know, he's talking about to the great prince of darkness about working for him. The devil thinks that Dove is a good and faithful servant. Um, but this is more than just, you know, this, this broadside has more than just a literal depiction of Dove. Uh, there is quite a bit of uh, poetry, a mock epitaph for Dove as he dies, and I'll explain what he dies of, uh, that accompanied this. And this one here, this is really long, but as I said, it's my favorite. Uh, some of the highlights here. Uh, now, Dove, he is a servant of the devil. Uh, and it, this extended mock epitaph uh, says that Dove is inhuman uh, and he is guilty of, he has died of his many sins of the flesh. Uh, what are some of his sins of the flesh? He's a school teacher. Uh, well, he has the uniform practice of vice in school as a capital passion for practicing sodomitical acts on his students. Uh, he instructs at his school, he instructs the youth in the science of whoring. Uh, the only time in this uh, verse here, the only time that Dove ever, ever has qualms about sinning, about this kind of uh, uh, lust, these passionate, uh, deviant, lustful acts, the only time uh, uh, he has qualms about this is when his evil preferences contradict each other. Uh, the author writes here that although Dove is a misogamist, uh, he nonetheless was taken with an ardent desire, quote, to obtain the charcoal charms of a local gentleman's uh, enslaved woman. Uh, his desire to commit the, quote, most shocking crime, of quote, black fornication, uh, he over, you know, that desire overcame his hatred of women and his, you know, favorite, or uh, his desire for young boys. Uh, so he obtained this enslaved woman and he continually wallowed in uh, consupience with her. Eventually, through all of this sexually deviant activity, uh, Dove becomes a literal embodiment uh, he becomes a literal infection on the body politic. Uh, his this uh, uh, African American enslaved woman uh, that he has sex with uh, gives him uh, uh, venereal disease. Uh, that it, he becomes, according to the epitaph, beyond the power of medicine. He is banned from New Jersey because his putrid strength, uh, putrid stench has fouled the air of the entire colony. Uh, and anyone, according to the author here, anyone who encounters Dove runs the risk of catching such an infection that 
you know, would, would uh, cloud all of Southern New Jersey or any area like that. Um, the moral of the epitaph here, men like Dove threatened to rot the body politic from inside, very literally. So kind of taking together these cartoons, both these uh, anti-Quaker cartoons and then this one, uh, the devil and Dr. Dove that's uh, 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 you know, against someone who is in favor of the Paxton boys, they show how important masculinity, sexuality, and race were in shaping ideas of subjecthood and citizenship. Uh, if you were going to be a good citizen, you had to be a good man, which had to mean that you, you had to control the boundaries of your sexuality, and you had to fight, and you had to protect families, women, and children in your life. You had to be a good patriarch in all of these different ways. And the political cartoons, I think, are important because they get this across in a more visceral way, uh, in a more immediate way than you know, just other verse could even do. Uh, and so that's why I think when I first encountered these cartoons, I, I thought, you know, uh, how can these possibly be that important? But even though they seem a little scurrilous, even though they seem a little crazy, they shed a great deal of light, I think, on how people thought of identity and politics during this period and a moment of crisis. Uh, now, I hope I haven't gone too long. I'm ready to take any question and answer that you guys have. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much, John. If you have any questions, feel free to submit them. I wanna kick off with a question of my own. Um, there, there are certainly a lot of pamphlets that critique the Paxtons and their allies, right? Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking even that there is a pamphlet entitled The Conduct of the Paxton Men, which refutes those very critiques, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and yet in the political cartoons, as I understand them, there's very little representation of Paxtons, even though you'd think that they would be sort of paragons of masculinity, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like, what, what do you make of that absence? I mean, I think part of the absence is that Quaker bodies are so distinctive. Their plain style and the way they handle themselves. Quakers talk about it endlessly. The fact that we wear plain clothes and the fact that they speak in certain ways. Um, and so the image of the literal image of a Quaker taking up arms uh, is, I think, striking enough that they're able to do that. Yep. Plus the fact that you can work in uh, the racial and sexual elements of it, uh, I think is uh, part of what is to make it shocking. Yep. And a, a good shocking critique. Great. Uh, well, this, this leads us perfectly into our first question from Richard Evans, which basically is the question of my dissertation. Why did Quakers take up arms? Well, okay. Uh, I'll say this. Even though by this time the peace testimony had been uh, an important part of Quaker theology and Quaker faith and practice, there were, shall we say, worldlier friends in Philadelphia than uh, there were worldly friends as well as spiritual friends. And that's how Quakers described themselves. Uh, there were Quaker men who were more interested in some of the political you know, and military issues of the day. Uh, who were willing to abandon or 
at least compromise these principles in order to defend the city against the Paxson boys. Uh, so, you know, I think for some friends there, just as the same way for some friends who stayed in the assembly, they were perfectly willing to fund, uh, some of them uh, fund the war, right? To participate in the war that way. Uh, so I guess I would say that among some friends, uh, just like with a lot of other groups, uh, there were people who were willing to go against the kind of dominant or the supposed official testimony in order to act just like non-friends would do. All right, we have a question from Nicole Dressler. Hi, Nicole. Um, thank you for a wonderful talk, John. There's so much richness here about gender ideas and identity. Do we know how Quaker women responded to these editorials? How far and why did these cartoons circulate? I should say, I mean, I'll admit that I haven't uh, studied the, haven't done research on the response of Quaker women to uh, these uh, uh, cartoons. I don't know if anyone else has, so this could be a, uh, a uh, good field of research for people to do, a good topic for people to research. Uh, but I'm not sure that we know. Uh, and I don't know if there are quite enough, say, manuscript sources written yeah. by Quaker women that might address this. Uh, how far and wide did these cartoons circulate? My understanding is pretty wide. Now, will you know about the publication of these things and uh, the reach of the audience? But my understanding is that uh, these had a big audience, certainly in Philadelphia, but also elsewhere in the colony. Uh, yeah. So that lots of people, many, many readers would be familiar with them. Yeah, and um, just to that point, you know, th there are often different permutations of these cartoons. There are the sort of larger ones, which you could see at the library company when we reopen, of course. Um, but in the meantime, you can enjoy them on digital Paxton. Um, but, but certainly there are smaller versions that get enclosed with the pamphlets. And so mm -hmm. there's a whole interesting publication history where pamphlets get recirculated and bound together in a complicated mm -hmm. way. It's almost like a, a Twitter thread, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, excellent. So we've got a question from Kristen Olbertson. Uh, this is such an interesting talk. Thanks so much. Um, I wonder if you are thinking that there's any unique if, if there's anything unique to the genre of satire that accomplishes the construction of public identity that you're tracing. I know there's not much satire in the British colonies before the mid-century. Sorry, it's, this is one of the ones I'll try to answer where I could go on far too long. I don't want to take as far too long on. Uh, I think that, uh, I mean, first, this really is, in terms of genre, the fact that it's political cartoons, it's very innovative that way. Uh, so in terms of that kind of genre, in other terms, in terms of the uh, verse or you know, uh, other stuff here, uh, I would say that I think that there is a great, uh, there's similarities, there are similarities between other, uh, between other forms of satire in British North America and other forms of satire in Britain. Uh, the idea that, uh, men's secret identity includes sexual deviance uh, is something Tom Foster has written about this, uh, an anti-Masonic uh, satire in the 18th century. It's like, what are the Masons getting up to behind closed doors? Sodomy. Uh, uh, and, you know, the, the genre of what do religious dissenting groups do behind closed doors 
you know, sex between men and men, sex between men and women. Uh, that's a, a, there's a big history of that. If you look at anti-Moravian uh, writings, the idea that what Moravians do, where they live, where men and women live together, all kinds of things that would put the Quakers to shame here. That's great. And you've actually anticipated the next question with that gesture towards um, the religious um, uh, register here. Melissa Johnson says, hi, John. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the intersection of religious, racial, and gender deviance depicted in these pamphlets um, or political cartoons here. Um, were these accusations that readers would have found, are, are the, or were these accusations that readers would have found familiar or do you think that there is a shift in how Quakers were understood as a result of the Paxton events? Uh, what I would say is that in individual terms, people would have recognized this. Uh, for instance, the idea that uh, someone is, 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 is committing somewhat, something more than a sin uh, in North America by having sex. A man is uh, uh, committing more than a sin in North America by having sex with a non-white woman. Uh, this is clearly you know, a sign of uh, deviance or degeneration. Uh, there's a lot of satire accusations in the British Caribbean that what's wrong with male planters there, uh, male enslavers there is that they have sex with African-American enslaved women. Uh, people in Pennsylvania would lobby those charges against uh, enslavers in the Caribbean. Uh, they would also, in this case, lobby those charges against, you know, Quakers, that that's what makes them deviant. Uh, the idea that Quakers are deviant sexually, that the men are deviant sexually, there's a history of that uh, in England and English America. One of my favorites that I didn't mention here, there's a great poem from New England about a Quaker man uh, who you know, commits bestiality, his goat is his uh, uh, girlfriend, or he wants to marry his goat. Uh, and so there's that. Uh, also, though, one of the things that I find interesting here, it's like a lot of these different critiques kind of are crystallized in one place. Uh, they're different tastes that go great together. They come together uh, in this one place to make a much more coherent argument about what a good civic subject is and what a bad civic subject is. Uh, I hope that that makes sense. Uh, I don't know if I tied that together, but it ties together a lot of other pre-existing things. Uh, oh, the last, sorry, the last thing I wanna tie this together, uh, the racial fears about whites mixing with non-white peoples. Uh, that's a huge fear and anxiety and a very significant charge to lob against someone else in colonial, uh, in the colonial British Atlantic world. So a fear that you're no longer white or that your whiteness has somehow been compromised by sex with non-white people. Uh, there are lots of anxieties about uh, people becoming degenerate in the Americas. This is one of the primary ways in which there are these fears of degeneracy or deviance, uh, the existence of non-white people there uh, with whom you know, one might uh, cross racial lines with. Yeah, and, and just as we're thinking about sort of opening the aperture to other religious groups, um, have you taken any note? I'm, I'm thinking back to that, that German bleeds and bears you first, the cartoon mm -hmm. that you had up. Have you taken any note to the representations of other religious minority groups? 
Yeah. Uh... So we have the Scots-Irish Presbyterians. Yeah. We have the German Moravians in that cartoon. Um, and they're both sort of in this sort of supplicant position, um, but in, in different ways, right? Have to you given that honest, any thought? To be, yeah, I've given that thought. To be honest, I'm not necessarily sure. I don't think there are any other associations of an entire religious group being put in that category. Yeah. And some of that, I think, is because uh, there aren't other religious groups which stand out as a whole as being so separate in terms of having a compromised whiteness. Yep. Uh, the Friendly Association, I kind of thought I would mention, the Friendly Association was you know, put together by a number of philanthropic leading Quakers in the colony to advocate on behalf of peace. Uh, you know, and again, they worked with native peoples serving as translators and, and diplomats of the Treaty of Easton. So you really get along with the other uh, peace testimony of Quakers, you get this association of Quakers being somehow compromised in their whiteness by acting this way. Uh, and I don't know that there are other religious groups that really uh, have that going on with them. I, it certainly is, if you want to lob an accusation against a gentleman that uh, he's, there's something bad about him, accusing him of having, especially with uh, enslaved Black women, accusing him of having relations with uh, enslaved Black women. That's a way to yep. uh, uh, attack his personal honor and personal reputation. Uh, but I don't, there's, I don't think there are any group associations, even for the Moravians, who were such uh, major missionaries who, who uh, engaged in a great deal of missionary work towards Native peoples in Pennsylvania. I don't think there's ever that connection made that they're sexually deviant and on the side of Indians. I don't recall that there's a lot of satire or writing about how mm -hmm. the Moravians are interested in these missions because the Moravian men uh, can't keep their hands off Native women. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that, that's sort of my impression too. I was just hoping that you'd have something that blew my mind there. That I, I, you know what I wish that I did. <laughs> yeah, and I mean certainly as we're thinking about some of the other cartoons that are available, and I, I dropped in a link to uh, the Digital Paxton Cartoons Collection. Um, uh, there is the election medley, and in that you have one of the earliest representations of products of miscegenation. You have two black figures talking about a squire Lilliput, which is. Um, the code name for David James Dove, who you saw in the cartoon between the yeah, 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 yeah. All right, we got a question from Michael Good. Uh, to what extent was the anti-Quaker polemic necessary for pro-Paxton writers to get around the fact that they were accused by Franklin and others of engaging in unjust violence, such as the massacre of unarmed Indians, including women and children? Uh, I would say that to some extent that's there. Uh, because some of the arguments, some of the gendered arguments that like Franklin and some others make against the Paxton boys is they argue, the Paxton boys argue that they're, uh, that the Quakers are bad ones. Uh, but the Paxton boys are brutes. They don't have sense, right? They're not in control of their passions. So they kill people. Um, I really think, though, that when you have the Paxtonians and the pro-Paxtonians defending their actions, 
a lot of it has to do with uh, other theorizing or other kinds of justifications in terms of the fact that the Conestoga Indians uh, were not real subjects of the crown in Pennsylvania. They were kind of traitors within the realm and that they didn't deserve the same kind of protection, that they didn't deserve the same kind of protection that white subjects in the colonies did. And in fact, one of the justifications that some of the Paxson boys give uh, of why they were doing this, of why they were rebelling, uh, and boy, this might sound too familiar, they say they're attacking the capital because the Quakers themselves who run the government have betrayed the king by not fighting on the king's behalf. So that if you were really loyal to the king, you would actually overthrow, you would massacre these native peoples and you would try to overthrow the Quakers in charge, you know, cause that's really what, that's if you're really a patriot, you overthrow the government. Uh, and so that's one of their legal arguments that they make. And I actually don't think that, I think that those are real. I don't think that they're just covers. And I think that those can go hand in hand with, uh, they can go hand in hand with these anti-Quaker appeals without, or these anti-Quaker charges without them just being covers. No, I, I guess I would say the anti-Quaker rhetoric isn't just rhetoric, they believe it. It's rhetoric that they believe. Yeah. As we're thinking about sort of the, the consequences of all this for Quaker authority, particularly in Philadelphia, Denise Birkeland adds a comment. Uh, before the American Revolution in Philadelphia, the Quakers were the powerful movers and shakers. You know, we're thinking about merchants, judges, et cetera. So this wasn't um, impacting them until the war, British occupation of Philadelphia, when their pacifism made them suspect. How do you read uh, that? Well, one of the things, that's exactly true. That the Quakers were the leading men in society, quite literally. Uh, the uh, Quakers controlled a majority of delegates in the assembly from the beginning of uh, Pennsylvania on. In some years, they, they uh, had like 80% of the seats, won 80% of the votes. They were leading merchants, leading judges. Uh, at the beginning of the war in 1754 and 55, most friends in the assembly stepped down. They stepped away from political power. Uh, by and large, uh, let's see, I don't think the merchants in Pennsylvania continue to be some of the leading men there. Many friends step out of political life or public administration as a way to, uh, you know, for those men uh, keeping their pacifist faith, right, or not trying to participate in the government becomes more important. Uh, there are worldlier friends who can compromise these supposed principles and stay in the government. Um, but they did become, they were suspicious from there on out. And in fact, some of the cleavages that you see in the American Revolution, uh, there's a great deal of persecution of Quakers and Mennonites during the revolution because all of this anti-Quaker and anti-pacifist sentiment that people had, you know, gets... Uh, directly visited upon them by Scotch, Scots-Irish Presbyterians who have not forgotten that uh, Quakers were traitors, so-called traitors, and that the Mennonites were so-called traitors by not fighting during the Seven Years' War. So this, these memories don't go away, and the violence continues, uh, you know, a decade and a half later during the War for Independence. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, immediately the elections of 1764, um, a lot of Paxton allies in Philadelphia mm-hmm. um, uh, unseated, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of Quaker aligned party. And that included Benjamin Franklin, the rare political loss. And then as you look ahead to the American Revolution, Elizabeth Drinker has an amazing entry or series of entries about the violence against Quaker homes that didn't have their candles lit in solidarity with the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a gradual process that certainly begins, I think, as you said, John, with um, the Seven Years' War and a lot of Quakers relinquishing their power in the assembly. Um, we have a question here uh, from, ben, from Ben Bankers. Hi, Ben. Uh, thank you for a wonderful paper tied to Will's point about ethnicity. Are Germans considered good subjects according to the definition of militant citizenship? Uh, thinking here of the assembly cartoon, uh, German mm-hmm. leads in which the German is portrayed as a docile victim of Quaker authority, not so uh, with the figure labeled the, uh, excuse me, not so with 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 uh, the figure labeled a Hibernian? Uh, this is a very good question. Uh, and I'll try to keep my response short because we're near the end of time. Uh, in previous examples of uh, Pennsylvania militias, unofficial militias, now I said the Quakers and the government never formed a militia at any point, uh, but Franklin forms a private association in 47 and 48, and in the pamphlet Plain Truth, which is the other political cartoon in Pennsylvania before, uh, before the revolution, uh, in that pamphlet he talks about different groups in Pennsylvania walking stride by stride in their clothing. Uh, and for one of the groups that he's talking about, it's uh, Germans wearing German clothes, right, to make sure that all the ethnic groups are walking together. Uh, so the Germans, in Franklin's view, in the, in the, the uh, war of Spanish succession, they're, uh, they're good patriots for doing this. Uh, during the Seven Years' War itself, many German groups even uh, those that aren't fighting, many Germans, even those that aren't fighting, are very uh, vocal about their participation and support. One of the things I was struck with re- um, struck with reading this is you see articles in the newspaper where people wrote an article about how this German community you know, sent lots of grain to the British army and the frontier. They want to know. They want people to pick up the newspaper and know, you know what? We're not sending people to fight, but look what proud Britons we are. You know, we're showing that we're part of this. Uh, they go out of the way to uh, do this. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think that they do go, not even in, in there, it's not in terms of militant citizenship, but they're part of the war effort. It's important to show that they're part of the war effort. Uh, they do also get portrayed by their political opponents as just being, you know, kind of Quaker sheep. Uh, they are political footballs. Uh, the one last thing I have to work in, I know we're near at the end. The 1765 election is just a mess. Uh, one of the things that's important, I guess they had, we'd say, same day registration at the polls. One third of all of the naturalizations that happened in British America before 1776 happened on a single day. Election day, 1765 in Pennsylvania. Uh, A third of all the registrations in colonial British America happen on election day where you have Germans naturalizing so they can cast votes for the assembly party. Uh, But there though, right? What? 
the Palatine boars coming back. The to Palatine boars. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that when you have something like that, then the Germans can be accused of just being these automatons or drones serving Franklin or serving the Quakers. Uh, so yeah, it's very, the Germans can be good citizens and bad citizens whenever you want them to be. Well, John, um, I love this talk. I love an excuse to talk about Paxton stuff. Um, and I also appreciate the fact that you localized your backdrop there. And um, yeah. I uh, certainly hope that we can um, bring you into the Quaker City on a research fellowship in the not too distant future. I would absolutely love that, for God's sakes. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining. Uh, next week, we'll have Emily Casey, who uh, just completed her fellowship last fall, and she's going to be talking about that big painting in our reading room, Liberty Displaying the Arts and Sciences. I'm very excited about that. She's, her, her, her talk is called Liberty Displaying the Arts and Sciences, Abolition and Empire in the Post-Revolution Atlantic World. I look forward to seeing you all next Thursday, same time, same place. Thank you again, John, for joining us. Good night, all.